Make yourself full! Money point seven. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Movie Talk Show. My name is Ben Flanagan, and I am joined, as I am every week now, by Corey Kraft. Corey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Good. We have seen some movies, and we're here to discuss them. As always, we'll go to our Above the Fold news, and we're joined by a guest today, uh, a good friend of the Movie Talk Show in the past when it was called Reeling uh, to 90.7, and a former contributor. Ben Stark, are you on the line? Yes, I'm right here. Great. Well, Ben, um, before we get to it, let's uh, talk about something a little more serious. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're located in the Huntsville area, correct? Yeah. And there was some tragic news yesterday yeah. that I'm sure a lot of people are aware of. I was just hoping, uh, without getting too um, specific necessarily, you could kind of give us the uh, mood of the town, what you've seen, and uh, what everybody's feeling up there right now. Um, it's a... Uh... <clears throat> It's pretty shocking uh, because in addition to what happened yesterday at UAH, there was actually a, a high school shooting last week. Um, and, uh, and this week, a, a, a beloved local um, musician actually passed away, too. So it's, it's a really weird time, um, and it just feels like uh, uh, everybody's, no, nobody's like, uh, there's, not a, there's not a fear or anything, but it's just kind of a morose feeling um, and kind of a confusion. Um, because nobody knows what either of the shootings have, uh, were really connected to. Um, uh, it's just very bizarre. Right. Well, we're very sorry to hear that, and our thoughts are with the Huntsville community. Uh, so thanks for giving us a little insight on that. Sure. Um, but let's get to it. Let's get to the movie news uh, that we're here to discuss. Let's have some fun. Um, jumping right in, several industry sources reported this week that Christopher Nolan, who directed Memento and The Prestige, uh, but most, most notably in this context, uh, he was the savior of the Batman franchise for Warner Brothers with his reboot, Batman Begins, and his highly celebrated sequel, The Dark Knight. Uh, he has agreed to be the quote-unquote mentor um, for this new Superman property that Warner Brothers owns, and they want to make a new film. Essentially, this means that he'll get an executive producing credit and will have some sort of creative input on the overall story. Now, supposedly, Nolan will not direct this movie, and no one is ruling out that both director Brian Singer and Brandon Routh could return, uh, but there is buzz that Warner Brothers is entertaining the idea of a new director taking the wheel, and I think that the director of The Transporter, Louis Leterrier, how do you pronounce his name? Leterrier. Leterrier is pursuing the job fairly actively. Now, while I'm a fan of Nolan's work on Memento, and I think The Prestige is his best movie and one of the best films of this decade, and I'll even admit that he moved the Batman franchise in an interesting and ultimately positive direction, but I'm not going to hail Christopher Nolan as any kind of cinematic demigod like some will, uh, maybe some who are joining me today live in the <laughs> studio and on the phone line. Uh, it does make sense, though, to seek the counsel of the man who challenged Titanic's all-time box office record while also helming a critical favorite like he did with The Dark Knight. And typically, any movie in Nolan's hands is going to benefit somehow because of it, though once they hand it off to the director of The Transporter, it certainly becomes something else entirely, but I suppose it couldn't hurt. Now, let's get to it. In the comic book world, or more specifically the DC world, you've got your Batman people and your Superman people. And right now, we are joined by Ben Stark, a guy who loves both, but I think tends to lean in one direction if pressed. And again, former DJ for 90.7 and contributor and local filmmaker uh, in the state of Alabama, Ben Stark joins us. Ben, give us your general reaction to the news that Nolan is now officially part of one of the, or part of the Superman property, um, one of your favorite of all time, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's really great news. Um, I know uh, a lot of people kind of put him, uh, put Nolan in the gritty realism category, and and kind of think that that's the that's the sticker that he kind of puts on all his work. But I think what, what what's special about him is that he uh, he 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 knows how to create a, an organic kind of universe with has genre ideas and kind of sci-fi ideas, but then combines that with real real stakes and real emotional consequences. Um, he's just a, sh a really sharp sharp mind and a, a great mind, and, and it, 
in the industry. So I think uh, I think it's great news, and I think uh, I, I don't think it's going to end up being um, kind of a Superman French connection, which apparently a lot of people are afraid of. Corey, you're also a big Nolan fan, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. and I know that you're generally a big comic fan and comic book movie adaptation fan. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I'm a Batman guy, and I'm probably the one person on the planet who loved the Dark Knight to the extent that I don't want to see a Dark Knight follow-up. Um, that said, I, I'm also a big fan of Superman Returns, so as much as it kind of pains me to say this, if Warner Brothers is, is moving forward with a sort of Superman Returns reboot, given the overwhelming unpopularity of that movie... Uh, Nolan's a good guy to, to shepherd it. I, I, I think this will probably... I mean, it can't hurt. You know, what, what do they have to lose with the Superman franchise in the eyes of the audience? Exactly, and this could also mean that Warner Brothers is taking a cue from Marvel by sort of creating a singular continuity between its franchises in which DC characters exist in the same world and intersect. Now, Ben, does that bode well for the studio in these franchises? And really, more importantly, what I'm wanting to know, is that what you'd like to see as a fan? Um, I think I think it's a great idea. I think it's a natural thing. Um, I think audiences with with the uh, the the rise of kind of serialized television and, and really long form um, narratives. I think everybody's kind of ready for cinematic um, uh, continuities that kind of go on for for several movies. Of course, usually it's just money is the problem in securing stars and things like that. But um, so I think it's a great idea for for DC Entertainment to kind of. Um, try to mold a DC cinematic universe. Uh, as far as what I'd like to see, um, I think, uh, this is a silly, crazy idea, I think they need some sort of brain trust. Um, kind of the same way that Pixar has, you know, they have Lasseter and, and Stanton and Brad Bird, and, and they, they have a brain trust of people that guide every project and kind of, uh, you know, call the filmmakers on, call shenanigans on the filmmakers if they feel like something's not reading. I think uh, I think DC needs to do that same thing for their kind of universe. Um, get guys like Grant Morrison or Paul Dini, Bruce Tim, um, even John Byrne or Jeff Johns, the guys that are kind of like reinventing the the DC universe or have in the comics, and even bring Richard Donner in there, who, who has uh, you know brings an old school kind of Hollywood touch to it. Um, let those guys, let them led by Nolan, let them kind of dictate this kind of whatever 10 movie story arc of, of whatever the DC uh, cinematic universe is going to be. Because that's kind of what guy like Avi Arad and Zach Penn and John Favreau kind of did with Marvel. And you can probably put together a better team than that. Even. Well, and Corey, we, with Marvel films, we have seen this sort of continuity in uh, character intersection, mm -hmm. uh, most, more specifically in Iron Man, at the end of Iron Man, and uh, in the end of Incredible Hulk too. Do you think that this has been sort of an awkward execution or was it successful and is it something that DC can sort of um, take a cue from and perhaps execute more successfully? Well it's been subtle to the to this point uh, you, you know you had like you said Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk were really the, the only ones that have intersected so far if I'm not mistaken uh, just because they were the only ones that have so far been produced under the the aegis of Marvel Studios. Now what I think DC will probably do if they're going to create an intersecting film series is wait and see audience reaction to Iron Man 2 and to Thor and to uh, the Captain America movie when those are released in the next two years because those will be hev heavily intersected to build up to the imminent Avengers movie which I think comes out in 2012 or late 2011. Um, so I think it depends on how people enjoy uh, the Marvel uh, continuity. They're really, I mean, it's really an ambitious plan by Marvel to do it, and I think DC is going to wait, sort of step back and wait um, to see how Marvel pulls it off and, and take some notes from it. Because they're launching uh, the Green Lantern uh, as a franchise, I think, next year. I think mm. that's filming now. Um, and I, I, think, I really think they're just going to wait and see how audiences handle it. And it, it's weird now that there's now that Disney bought Marvel. Now that now it's like a real ball game, yeah. you know, because it's like a huge corporate uh, giant with this little with Marvel under their wing, and and the same goes for Warner and DC. Well, then, while Brian Singer's highly ambitious Superman Returns grossed nearly four hundred million dollars worldwide, 
a lot of people regard the project as a misfire and even a failure to reinvigorate the public's interest in the character. Now, do you think Warner Brothers' decision to spark a reboot is a direct reaction to Singer's film, or would you even call it an insult to that film? Uh, no. <clears throat> I think I think you'd be blind not to admit that Superman Returns was clearly not the Superman that audience wanted um, or, or, or continued to care about. Um, I think people actually generally like the movie, um, but it's it, it had kind of a really um, uh, a one shot tone. You know, it was it was a it was a graphic novel, and it was kind of a meditation, and it didn't inspire people, and it didn't have people coming back. Um, like I said, I love the I love Superman Returns, um, but uh, the be- one of the best things about the character is that he can kind of inspire, and he, it's you've got kind of a, a Star Trek original series kind of. Uh, level of optimism and, and, and hope for the future that just kind of wasn't in Superman Returns. It was, like I said, it was kind of a one-shot graphic novel that was a deconstruction of, of the Donner movies. So hopefully this uh, Superman 3.0, as they're apparently calling it, hopefully it'll be more Adventures of Robin Hood and less Robin and Marion. Yeah, that's I, I think that's an interesting point. I like what you said about uh, the Star Trek original series sort of tone that wasn't present in in um, in Superman Returns, uh, which is funny because J.J. Abrams at one point tried to to shepherd a, a Superman yeah. reboot, um, and when frustrated with that, moved on to Star Trek, and that and that worked. Well, obviously you're both Nolan fans, uh, but do you think he's the right guy here uh, to do this job? Obviously, he was successful with The Dark Knight. He, his brother Jonathan and David Goyer, are reportedly writing the Dark Knight follow-up. Now, do you guys think that he should stick to one franchise and maybe hand the reins to another worthy filmmaker like J.J. Abrams or someone else? Who else could fill that role, and for that matter, who should direct this next Superman movie, Ben? Um, well, I don't think he's going to be putting in like very long hours, um, and I don't think he's going to be directing. So I, I don't think it's going to distract him from Batman or his original works. Um, he's, a, he's in a small percentage of people on this planet right this second that can do whatever he wants. I mean, he could he could book a, a trip to the moon if he wanted to. Um, and he's chosen not to make a dark, not to rush a Dark Knight sequel. So I think he, I think he knows how to kind of budget his, his time and, um, and budget his resources. But I think, I, I do think he's, he's the right guy to kind of executive produce and shepherd this because he's a great storyteller. And I think what's more important than a, in a director for, for this upcoming movie is it's more important than director is a screenplay. Um, and it's a it's a good we need a good superman screenplay with a clear vision a great story and uh, a little bit more love for the superman mythology um the donner and the singer movies they kind of kind of gave the cold shoulder to so much of his background uh and i'd love to see a movie with mixus pitalik or bizarro uh and i th- i like the comparison that you started the show with actually the they should they this the superman franchise has a 007 um potential for kind of longevity there's so many stories to tell um but uh but to go back to the question i think uh brad bird or andrew stanton golden age superman is is basically john carter on earth so i think andrew stanton could probably uh make a great superman movie Corey, if you had to choose a director who would you pick for the superman franchise this is going to sound weird but just think about it in the style of the hudsucker proxy joel and ethan cohen yeah, there was that article on Ain't It Cool where they, where I think it was Moriarty called for a, a period um, Superman directed by the Coen brothers. Really? Well, uh, Corey, explain yourself. I, I, I just love the Hudsucker proxy, and, and I, I kind of want to see uh, a return to Superman, uh, to, to Golden Age Superman. I think I think making Superman as a period piece even might solve some of the, the trickier uh, modern interpretations of of the character that have sort of plagued filmmakers and plagued audiences. Uh, my second choice might be the guy who did uh, Sky Captain of the World of Tomorrow. Um, just in terms of tone, maybe not in the in the blue screen type deal that that movie presented. Ben, I think you were really onto something when you said Brad Bird. Um, obviously, he nailed the superhero genre with his original work, The Incredibles. But the feel of that movie. Uh, felt like something I would like to see in a Superman film. Just and Iron Giant is a great Silver right. Age yeah. comic book story. Absolutely. And before we get to our last question uh, about the, the Superman franchise, I'm just kind of 
concerned about its future because, you know, growing up, if you read comics, you were well aware that there was sort of this head honcho of the comic book universe, and that was Superman. Superman was sort of the end-all, be-all um, figurehead of comic books. Now, Ben, when did Superman begin to lose touch uh, with comic book readers out there who seemingly latched on to either Batman or these other characters that might have had... Uh, I don't know, might have had more interesting backstories, more more uh, flaws, uh, say, than Superman. I don't think they ever did. I think in, in the comics world, Superman has maintained popularity. Um, it's, it's, it's the mainstream culture that's kind of been alienated. And I think it's more of, more of the gatekeepers that in control of the property have being scared of their own shadow um, than people actually disliking Superman. Um, and I think... Uh, I think one of the problems with Superman Returns, like we said, he, he wasn't necessarily a likable guy. He was an empathetic guy, and he was a guy that you kind of, uh, you know, uh, you, especially if you listen to a lot of uh, Dashboard Confessional or something, <laughs> you, you kind of empathize with the guy. Um, but you didn't necessarily love the guy. You didn't necessarily want to, like, hang out with him. And I think in, in movies about good people, like good heroes, which we don't get nowadays, by the way, because of Empire Strikes Back. Everybody loves an anti-hero. Uh, even in 2006, you saw people chose Jack Sparrow over Superman. But um, I think uh, I think people people would accept a Superman if you gave them a Superman that's um, kind of fun to be around. Uh, it's a little bit more like like we like we've been talking about, like Kirk. Um, that's not necessarily a per- perfect Boy Scout but just kind of a great leader and a good decision maker like he is in the comics. Well, Ben, what would you call the greatest uh, cinematic or televised iteration of the Superman property? Um, moving, I would say the, the DC animated Superman um, ca- uh, cartoon series from the 90s is great. Because, That's the best you've seen? Yeah, I think it's the best I've seen because it is, it is that he's just, a super, he's just a nice guy, and the Clark Kent that they, 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 um, they portray isn't, Bumbling and isn't isn't embarrassing. He's just a really good journalist, and uh, he's just as serious as Superman. But because they're both so good at what they do, and because they they make the right decision, he's, he's just a really fun character to be around, a fun show to watch. But on the page, um, I really love uh, All Star Superman. It's a really great interpretation, and uh, and Golden Age, uh, old thirties Golden Age Superman uh, or forties strips are great because uh, he beats people up with with reckless abandon and like dangles them off of rooftops and it's just a bully basically it's great um i'd, I'd have to say I, i'm still i'm still partial to superman 2 myself really uh, which is my favorite of the movies um on the page uh i gotta go with uh with alan moore's classic uh whatever happened to the man of tomorrow oh it's so depressing uh, but it's so good <laughs> it is it's, it's alan good. moore man what, what else would it be yeah, true. You know. All right, well, let's move on, Ben. Thanks for your thoughts on Superman. But let's move into our Dare to be Stupid director lightning round. For every guest, we'll administer this short personality test uh, to sort of gauge where they stand on what a certain list of filmmakers has to offer. And what they choose is going to tell us just about everything we need to know about them. Uh, each list will not be the exact same uh, as the other, though you will see some filmmakers pop up at least every time. Uh, the Pantheon greats, and we will include a few names to accommodate the preferences we know of our weekly guests. And what you're going to do here, Ben, is you're going to pick your favorite film from the catalog from each director. Are you ready to go? Yeah, I guess so. All right, let's go down this list. Your favorite of Steven Spielberg? Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Woody Allen? Husbands and Wives. Coen Brothers? Oh, um, changes every day. Today, I'll say Big Lebowski. Stanley Kubrick? Um, Strange Love. Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Rear Window. Soderbergh. Blimey. Akira Kurosawa. Um, Throne of Blood. Let's go with Throne of Blood. All right. Good choice. Your boy, Preston Sturgis. Oh, um, the Palm Beach Story. Really? Hilarious. Okay. Available at the public library. Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Pulp Fiction. The Easy Choice. Uh, Martin Scorsese. Uh, the Hard Choice. The Departed. The Departed wow. is your favorite Martin what? Scorsese movie? Word. Okay, you've just given the namesake of this segment the, all the credibility that it needs. Okay, well, thanks, Ben. We really do appreciate you joining us and um, have fun up there in Huntsville. Do the best you can. 
Um, yeah. Appreciate your time this morning, uh, waking up to join us. Uh, yeah, man, it was fun. It was great talking to you guys. Yeah, you too. Yeah. And please do watch more Martin Scorsese movies. I think that once <laughs> you see so more, movie, than... I just like can't can't stop watching The Departed. <laughs> okay, well, we'll be right back to discuss uh, Universal's latest monster fare, The Wolfman, directed by Joe Johnston and starring Benicio del Toro. Uh, we'll leave you with some music that sort of sticks to that theme. Um, I think you'll get the picture once it starts up. Again, this is the Movie Talk Show. It is 9.22 in the a.m. We will be right back. Are you hungry? I know I'm okay right now. Thank you. I must be angry at the baby whenever it steals your food. I'm like, oh, it's mine, not yours. But, you know, because your family, you guys share. <laughs> Money points ever. back here on 90.7 The Capstone. This is the Movie Talk Show. You're joining Corey Kraft and myself, Ben Flanagan. We're back to discuss The Wolfman. You just heard Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf. How appropriate. Now, this film is directed by Joe Johnston. It stars Benicio Del Toro, Anthony Hopkins, Emily Blunt, and Hugo Weaving. Special makeup effects, Rick Baker, of course, and a musical score from Danny Elfman. It is currently playing at the Cobb Hollywood 16. Uh, so let's kind of get into this the plot. Let's just give you kind of the IMDb plot line. Upon his return to his ancestral European homeland, a famous American stage actor is bitten and subsequently cursed by a werewolf. Fairly simple stuff. Now, turmoil overshadowed much of this film's production, most of it occurring prior to shooting as the initial director, Mark Romanek, who directed One Hour Photo and uh, several music videos, I believe, yeah. uh, he stepped down when he wasn't given the budget he'd requested, basically. And in-step Journeyman director Joe Johnston, responsible for a lot of crowd-pleasing popcorn fare like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Jumanji, and October Sky. He's a good director. He's made some good stuff. The Page Master, if you can uh, remember that. Jurassic Park 3. Which isn't as bad as Part 2. No, Um, it's not. This marks his first R-rated film, too. Now, more production problems surfaced as Universal called for more action sequences as well as uh, changes to be made to the appearance and movements of the werewolf design and this uh, these reshoots basically pushed the release back an entire seven months now Corey, mm-hmm. this kind of trouble behind the scenes is often reflected on what we see in the finished product and universal's dumping the film into the murky depths of february did not bode well for the film now i ask you did all of this have a negative effect on the movie you saw yesterday i had a lot of fun with it I, I'm not gonna lie. It did not feel like a a problem movie. Uh, usually, when uh, these movies are sort of patched together uh, in a way that you just described, it it feels like it. You know, you can tell. And while uh, I do think there, and and by all reports, there are you know a full 20 minutes missing from the first act of of character development, and it certainly feels that way. Uh, what we have in theaters is a really good time that looks nice uh, it's well acted it's uh, it's cheesy and fun in all the right ways it's, it's I mean it's what you would expect from a, from a, a wolfman movie I think and you know I, I agree with you that there is some fun to be had here but where I think that these hitches might have revealed themselves in the finished product, Uh, is in the rapid pacing of the film. Uh Uh, We never really get to know or learn any substantial details about any of the four main characters of this film, especially Lawrence Talbot, who is played by Benicio Del Toro. And early on we see him on stage in costume holding a skull during what must have been a performance of Hamlet. But otherwise, as far as character development, we only see a few sudden flashbacks told through jumpy and muddled editing. Yes, it... All, all of the uh, character development is handled in montage, which uh, is is never really a good thing to do. Um, so I definitely agree with that with that point. It's like uh, somebody mandated them to cut out all the the boring stuff uh, and get to the werewolves, uh, because it's it's only what like 15 minutes into the movie that he's bitten by the wolf that you get your first action sequence, which which doesn't really seem it seems too rushed. Right, and we go from full moon. To full moon, right. the next scene, basically. Again, so handled in montage. However many days it takes to get to the next full moon, it only takes one scene to the other scene. And I'm somebody who likes fast pacing, but I think we rushed into a little a little bit here because, like you said, in the first 15 minutes, we barely get to know this character and we barely get any reasons to sympathize with him. Right. 
So where I do think that this film excels, though, is during its halfway scary but highly gory werewolf attack sequences when the beast unleashes all kinds of fury throughout the woods, gypsy camps, and insane asylums. And not to sound overly macabre or anything, but during this film's most violent moments is when I actually enjoy what's on screen. There, Johnson opts to pretty much scare the audience through sudden images and deafening noises along with a slew of blood and guts, and I actually loved it. I, yeah, I, I think that the werewolf attack scenes are excellent. Um, I think that uh, the movie actually in these scenes mixes uh, practical effects with the werewolf makeup and CGI very, very well. Uh, again, not typical of, of a, a sort of problem movie like the werewolf gained, uh, or the wolf man gained a reputation for being. Um, but these scenes are, I mean, they're excellently executed, and they feel like you know, obviously the one thing in the movie that wasn't tampered with, uh, which is probably the case, you know, you just, you throw in the gore and, uh, you know, the, the excitement in the studio is probably fine with it, but all the talking, you know, we gotta, we gotta speed that up. Yeah. And, you know, it was much gorier than I thought it was going to be. You know, it's, I knew it was going to be. It's very gory. It is. You know, so be warned out there. Um, you know, I, I love the stuff. You know, any any kind of uh, special bloody makeup effects, it's always fun. But in a studio film like this, directed by a guy like Joe Johnston, who made Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Now, granted, this is not Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. This right. is an R-rated horror monster movie. But even for a studio, they can be fairly conservative when it comes to the violence in these kinds of films, but they were not conservative here, and I, you know, I give them kudos for that. But my main problem with this film is how little I care about Lawrence Talbot, and how little I care about Benicio Del Toro's bumbling, boring, and rather amateur performance. Now, from one blank stare to another, Del Toro pretty much sleeps through this whole movie without a shred of leading man appeal. Now, I certainly hold nothing against the actor, and as we saw in the film like Traffic, he's perfectly capable of conjuring an emotionally charged performances, performance that audiences can latch onto. And But here, you know, he just doesn't get it, and I just felt more comfortable once he'd made that transformation into the beast and gone on his vicious rampages. Well, the unusual thing is that the Wolfman was something of a passion project for him. He's a producer of the movie. And, you know, I, I agree that his uh, his performance is a little, little too mumbly, a little too quiet, uh, and... Um, you know, only occasionally do we see that spark that he's best known for. I, I can't help but wonder if a lot of that ended up on the cutting room floor, though. There's really no way to tell. Just with all of the all of the moments that have seemingly been excised from the movie in the first act, uh, maybe there is a good Benicio Del Toro performance in there somewhere uh, that might come out for an inevitable director's cut. And what's with his little acting technique where he his face is facing down or the other way, but his eyes are always looking up at the character or looking to the side towards the character? I don't know. It just seems like <laughs> amateur hour. And, you know, the washed-out visual canvas did nothing for me to enhance the experience though i will say that some of the night sequences when they silhouette the characters in the woods that really provided a rich enough landscape to get us through the set pieces i thought it was excellently shot i am um, i love the the scenes in the forest at night i love the lighting uh the the victorian london sequence um while at times obviously cgi is very well executed um and uh, I, I just I love the set design of of their uh, creaky gothic manner. I thought that was fun and added a lot of inherent tension to proceedings that might have been uh, otherwise reasonably boring. But I mean, didn't you think that even Anthony Hopkins was kind of sleepwalking his way through another paycheck? Couldn't you feel like the sh shame and grief uh, wreaking havoc through his body when he told his son about his mother's death? Uh, how monotone was that when he says, her death finished me, I was devastated, and then just moves on to the next thing, can't you see that I'm dead in my eyes? And Emily Blunt is wasted in another meaningless role that dares to figure into any sort of romantic thread that's yeah, just ridiculous. That didn't work. Right, and really the only other performance worth noting is Hugo Weaving's... He's good. Yeah, incredibly fun role as this Scotland Yard inspector, and you know, like he did in the Matrix films and V for Vendetta, I really think he reads his lines better than anybody, and he chews so much scenery. Yeah, uh, I, I think that Anthony Hopkins, what made his performance so fun for me is just, uh, especially... And I, I don't want to get into spoilers, but especially near the end of the movie, he uh, he attacks his lines with such, I don't know, fury uh, that 
he just starts chewing the scenery all around him. I, I, I love that. I love to see a sort of unrestrained Anthony Hopkins. I just had so much fun with it. You're right that Emily Blunt doesn't really add anything. Uh, and and Hugo Weaving Hugo Weaving's really good here. Um, one of the interesting things about his character is that uh, they make mention of early in the film that he was one of the investigators in the Jack the Ripper case. Uh-huh. Uh, but the character is intended to be the actual main investigator in that case. He's intended to be uh, Johnny Depp's character from From Hell, see, essentially. I would see that reboot yeah. with Hugo Weaving in that role yeah, because totally. that would totally work and I think that Hugo Weaving has more of a leading man appeal than even Benicio Del Toro and you know plenty can also be said about Danny Elfman's original score uh, part of which to me sounds like a direct homage to what we heard in Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula that kind of reminded me of that a bit there was there was a theme that repeated that I couldn't put my finger on mm-hmm. I want to say that it was uh, that, that Elfman sort of stole, uh, or, well, it's not stealing, it's from himself. He borrowed elements uh, from his score for Spider-Man 2. Uh, I would have never picked up on that, just, just for the I've record. seen that movie so many times. <laughs> like, I, I, but I, I can't, I, I don't know if it's Spider-Man 2 or if it's something else. I think, I think it is. I think it's his, his uh, theme for Dr. Octopus. That shows up again in the Wolfman. I, I know that's you're a that's, true fan, man. I know that's uh, that's minor, but but it, it's the main theme of the Wolfman, and I I could have sworn that I that I heard it before, and I couldn't pick up on where, but I knew it was another Danny Elfman score. Well, Corey, I honestly never thought I would see in a film I would see in my lifetime a werewolf taking off his shirt right before he fights somebody like he's at some frat party or a football (laughs) game he rips off his shirt and i won't tell you the context of it but it's like he's at a baseball game like on south bar when randy marsh is fighting somebody and he's going like what's up what's up (laughs) yeah you know do you know the moment i'm talking about i do i do i just i was so caught up in that i thought it was kind of awesome i will say that the last action sequence is actually kind of fun and it's, it's well lit, you can see everything, and that's something you can say about the photography of this movie. When you're shooting a film at night, um, night action sequences often don't work out because we, the audience, can't see a thing. They don't light it properly to where we can make out what's happening on screen. You can refer back to the first Transformers film or right. Ang Lee's Hulk, where the night action sequences mm. are just so poorly lit and we just can't make out what's going on but Corey seemed to like it more than I did it's playing at the Cobb Hollywood 16 so if you agree or disagree with our comments on the film please email us at 90.7 movies at gmail.com and we will return after this this is another themed song this is Warren Zevon with Werewolves of London I had to do it <laughs> I could use a Twinkie 90.7 <laughs> A little mute music for this uh, segment of the show. Again, today is Valentine's Day Eve, uh, and I'm sure a lot of you fellows are scrambling around at your local drugstores, going through the card section and getting the last uh, heart-shaped box that's on the shelves. Uh, hopefully, you've made arrangements. Again, Valentine's Day falls on Sunday this year, which is, you know, put a lot of people into panic. But Valentine's Day is happening. It's not like it's not happening just because it's on Sunday. If I close my eyes and uh, put my hands against my ears, maybe maybe it won't happen. Maybe right? it'll go away? Yeah. Well, either way, since the day is happening, <laughs> uh, we are going to give you our top five Valenti- Valentine's Day movies. Now, these are romantic movies that provide a genuine, or this is a com- combination of genuine and emotional, genuine, uh, genuine <coughs> emotional resonance that gave us hope about the oft-dismissed L word. Uh, we'll try to avoid cheesy and obvious picks, though some of ours might have become more predictable than they used to due to years of cult audiences embracing them. Yeah. And Corey, I will give it to you. Give me your number five. Uh, number five. Well, uh, I would have to say my number five is um, Sarah Polly's film uh, Away From Her, starring uh, the Academy Award-nominated Julie Christie. Uh, in a role about an older professor whose wife, played by Christy, um, suddenly contracts Alzheimer's. Um, seeing no other option, he puts her in, um, in a, a rest home where she promptly uh, forgets him and uh, falls in love with another man. Corey, the idea here is to reassure audience members. It's not, it's not a reassuring movie, but dumb. it is a very deeply and profoundly romantic movie. Uh, that nevertheless is a, is a huge downer, but 
a really, really wonderful, really touching movie. So it moved you. It 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 moved me quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll go ahead and get my sort of obvious pick out of the way. Um, I think it was unusual mm-hmm. uh, at a time, but Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love uh, really moved me. Uh, I think that um, it's a very unconventional love story where you have this uh, introvert who finally figures out how to let his feelings just completely flow and during his phone conversation with his sister when he's trying to find out where the new love of his life Lena is staying Mm -hmm. he just completely explodes on her and from that point on it just reaches this emotional high that it never comes down from for me and it to me is one of the most uplifting films uh, thanks to its love story and its characters, it's one of the most uplifting films uh, I've seen since Rocky. Sure, even it's a great movie. So it's you're one of my favorites. You're number four. Number four, um, is it's Harold and Maude. Uh, I guess another unconventional choice, but uh, the story of a of a young man, um, sort of a a prep school burnout who um, is is harboring suicidal thoughts, played by Bud Court, um, who falls in love with a. Uh, really vibrant uh older woman played by Ruth Gordon who uh as as this this older woman who embraces life and who uh um has a kind of a secret that motivates her that I don't want to reveal necessarily to people very layered movie yeah 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 very and it, it's a wonderful movie it's it's um i probably made most iconic by its by its soundtrack from Cat Stevens uh which and- is I'm sorry, and by there's something about Mary. It brought, yeah, that brought it right. attention to it. I, I suppose it did. I had completely forgotten about that. Right. I had never heard of that film since, really? until I saw the Fairley Brothers movie. <clears throat> I thought that they were joking. Um, but no, it's a good movie, and uh, uh, great director, Hal Ashby. Yes. Somebody who um, sort of finds his way under the radar. People need to know more about him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my number four is the Pixar film from 2007, Wally. Uh, and this is a tentative list. It, you know, films come and go. It's kind of a revolving door. But uh, when I first saw Wally, it didn't really have the effect on me that I that it did until I watched it on DVD. I thought it was a, a solid Pixar movie, mm-hmm. um, in a in a nice love story. But I think that there was a moment that I had missed during my theatrical experience that I caught on DVD, and it's when um, Wally and Eve. Uh, put their heads together when Wally is spoiler alert um, sort of his pa- he's powered down and she's trying to get him get him back and you see that little spark right uh, between their heads and I don't know what it is but that spark did it for me the next time I watched yeah. it and it just um, sent me to the moon and I thought that it completely made the film and it it put Wally back up uh, a little higher back on my Pixar list. You got to watch out for those Pixar movies and uh, emotional devastation, particularly with with Wally and mm-hmm. and Up mm-hmm. recently. You up, watch floored me, man. Yeah, and you talk about a great romance. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a great movie. Yeah. Uh, my number three is um, from 2005. Uh, Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice, uh, which is just a wonderful, underrated adaptation of that book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the movie that. I, it's it's Joe Wright's debut. It's the movie that sort of introduced him, I think, as, as a potent uh, director, a young director coming up, um, and the heir apparent, I would argue, to Anthony Minghella, um, sort of poised to inherit that that uh, that crown of of the classiest uh, adapter of of modern fiction in um, in film today. It's a great film and a great love story yeah. uh, between Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden who deliver great performances in a uh, wonderful final scene yeah. of the movie that is one of the most romantic moments of the decade, I, I would think say. so. And, and it's just so classically directed, so well put together. It's, uh, you know, I don't know if I would say that it's, it's still Joe Wright's best movie because I love Atonement, uh, but it's certainly his easiest to watch. Great movie. It'll make you feel good. Uh, lots of good moments. Uh, my number three is Gus Van Sant's Good Will Hunting. Um, one of my favorite movies of the 90s and what I still believe to be Gus Van Sant's best movie. Um, yeah, I could buy that. Yeah, a lot of people you know, would, would probably opt for his more avant-garde uh, films as of late. Maybe yeah. Elephant, maybe a couple more people. Milk, maybe a lot of people milk, think that that's milk a great Milk would film. be a bad choice. But I think Good Will Hunting is a fantastic film experience it's just very rich very full uh full of uh great performances a lot of depth 
Um, but to me, the heart of the movie, you could argue it is Robin Williams and Matt Damon's relationship uh, from psychologist to patient, and, and it really is rich, and there's a rom- romance unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but Minnie Driver and Matt Damon's uh, interplay uh, together, to me, is uh, some of the best chemistry I've seen in film in a long time. And um, again, the final moments of the movie uh, made me sort of, you know, it just made me feel good to be at the to be at the movies and see a character, you know, going after what he really wants, and uh, his his objectives were clear, and he was willing to give up, um, you know, whatever opportunities were before him uh, for the woman he loves. Yeah, both uh, both Damon and and Driver nominated for Oscars deservedly. The movie des- uh, nominated for Best Picture. Uh, it's it's such an earnest movie. I think that's what strikes me about it, especially compared to um, what I would argue is the more ironic like works of, of Van Sant in his late you know later career until Milk mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 a great movie great choice uh, my number two uh, th- this is probably more predictable than it should be is uh, Wes Anderson's Rushmore uh, sort of the film that, that captured uh, the adolescent me uh, not only to uh, notions of romance but to the greater world of filmmaking uh, I think Jason Schwartzman's uh, performance here is Max Fisher is sort of the archetypal uh, jilted uh, adolescent you know romantic here I, I think that that's um, I think that he defined it for for an entire generation um, and it's a just a wonderfully written uh, like you said of Goodwill Hunting a full uh, full movie Certainly, and I think that's one of the greatest romances I've ever seen, too. And I think that Max Fisher could be argued as um, sort of a, a film generation's Holden Caulfield right. in a lot of different ways. Um, so I, I totally agree. That's been on one of my lists before, and it, you know, but at the end of the day, it'll probably be be on mine too. My number two is what I think to be one of the most underrated movies of all time, and that's Martin Bress Meet Joe Black from 1998. Huh. Um, it's a three. It's kind of inexplicably. Uh, three hours long, uh, I, and it's there are no action set pieces or anything like that. It's just talking. It's just a romance that happens to be three hours, set in contemporary times, uh, about um, the Grim Reaper who comes to Earth uh, to take Anthony Hopkins' body. But while he's there in human form, he falls in love with Anthony Hopkins' daughter, played by uh, the now invisible Claire Forlani, who you might have seen in Mallrats as um, Jeremy London's girlfriend. Uh, so anyway, she's disappeared since then, but she gives to me what is such a, a, a wonderful performance, and she has unbelievable chemistry with Brad Pitt, of all people, just this megastar at this point. He was a big star then, too, really? but Claire Filani's disappeared, but I think that enhanced by Thomas Newman's bravura musical score, what I believe to be the best score of the uh, the 90s. Wow. Um, have you seen this film? I haven't. Yeah, that's... Put it on the queue, man. All right. uh, Martin Brest, the director of Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, and Geely. And Geely. Yeah, I don't know where he went wrong with Geely, but um, let me assure you that Meet Joe Black is a very unusual experience. Again, huh. it's three hours long, but I believe it to be uh, one of the more Capra-esque movies that we've seen in a long time, and really not so much... Uh, the Americana of the Capra films, but just kind of this idealistic sort of fantastical approach that Brest takes here. And it's beautifully shot by Emmanuel Lubezki, I believe, is the cinematographer. But again, Meet Joe Black, terrific film, uh, very rich in production design and production values overall. I I highly encourage you to see this film. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I had been warned against it, but I'll I'll check it out. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, if you'll permit me, my number one is a total cheat. Okay. Uh, I won't. I won't spend too much time talking about the the individuals here, but it's a four-way tie uh, between uh, four of Woody Allen's films. Oh, okay. Since I couldn't pick just one, um, those films are uh, in alphabetical order: Broadway, Danny Rose, Hannah and Her Sisters, The Purple Rose of Cairo, and Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Huh. Okay. You've seen, I mean, you've obviously seen all, all four of those. Right. Uh, we've got a mix of, of happy endings, which are unusual for right. uh, for Woody Allen with, with Broadway Danny Rose and, and Hannah and her sisters. Right. Perhaps uh, the most uplifting uh, two movies, I think, of his entire career. Uh, and then 
you've got some some kind of downer endings with with the Purple Rose of Cairo, which is nonetheless sweepingly romantic, I would say, uh, and Vicky Cristina Barcelona, which which is the sort of movie that causes one to sort of evaluate the whole notion of romance, uh, and it's his his masterpiece of the decade, I would say. I don't think kind of a downer aptly describes Purple Rose of Cairo. Well, I, I kind of want to understate that so people have the same reaction as I did when I saw it, which was just being floored for yeah. days. Okay, my number one, this is going to be a controversial pick, Corey. Um, you may or may not like it. I think that you turned yourself around on this pick I did. a while back, but I happened to watch this a few nights ago, so this is fresh on my mind, but it's M. Night Shyamalan's The Village uh, from 2004, I believe. Yep. Okay. Um, let me explain myself. Bryce Dallas Howard, in her performance, what I believe to be one of the best female performances of this decade. We're still in this decade, don't forget. Right. Um, her performance m- moves me. It really does. I think it is one of the most emotionally charged performances that I've seen in years. And all of her motivations um, are sparked by Joaquin Phoenix's character. Every single thing that she does is a reaction to him, and um, she is she sort of plays the hunter uh, who is after Joaquin Phoenix to court her because she is drawn to him and she is in love with him. And um, there are things that happen in the film uh, where her character is challenged, uh, things that happen to him, things that happen to her. But she is sent on this journey that is, you know where the objective is to do something for Joaquin Phoenix. And I won't say specifically what that is, but the, I mean, just the raw emotion in her eyes and and, in her voice and what she does is uh, just so captivating. And M. Night Shyamalan, you know, you love him or hate him. A lot of people seem to hate him these days. But I think that that film is highly misunderstood, and I think that there are certain scenes leading towards the climax that make or break the film for a lot of people, where it just completely loses them, and then the subsequent events that happen uh, make people think that the film's gone off the deep end. But Bryce Dallas Howard, to me, is the saving grace uh, if there are things you don't like about it. I think that you can't deny the emotional power that she brings to that role, and I think that that film actually has two of M. Night Shyamalan's best-directed scenes in the film or in his entire career it's when you have this two shot behind joaquin phoenix and bryce dallas oh, Howard yeah, when they're yeah, sitting yeah. on a porch that's a great shot moonlit uh basically and it's just brilliant writing and it and it uh, packs an emotional punch and emotional is the key word here if you haven't uh, figured that out and then you have um this i'll, I'll say it's the uh, scene between joaquin phoenix and adrian brody uh once he's learned right. some news about the new couple Um, But anyway, that's my number one at the moment. It is a very romantic movie, uh, however you look at it. Um, But that does it for us, I guess. And, you know, I didn't even throw in an obligatory Woody Allen pick this time for some reason. I don't really know why. (laughs) I threw in four because I couldn't help it. You threw mine in as well, I guess. So, uh, But anyway, we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back with our DVD picks and some announcements. This is the Movie Talk Show, and here's another Werewolf song. You gotta know all the tricks. Like, for example, if a woman's on top, she can't get pregnant. It's just gravity. Well, that's true. Everyone knows that. What goes up must come down. Money point seven. Back here on 90.7 The Capstone, this is the Movie Talk Show. And it is time for... Our DVD picks. Corey, this is the uh, segment we love to call Craft Services, where you give us two or three new DVD picks, so take it away. Uh, first of all, uh, you should check out um, Nicholas Winding Refn's new film, Bronson, which is now on DVD. It stars the heretofore unknown British actor Tom Hardy as a fellow who calls himself Charlie Bronson, the most notorious and violent criminal in the history of of uh, the British penal system. Um, it is a wonderful movie, though it is not for the weak, uh, weak-stomached. Um, Hardy gives a star-making, totally volcanic performance. Don't take my word for it, though. You're going to be seeing him a lot in the future, including in Christopher Nolan's upcoming uh, blockbuster, Inception. Uh, totally due to this movie. It's, it's a great movie. And while uh, this week is sort of slim pickings for movies that I like since I recommended the best movie of 2009, A Serious Man, last week, 
Uh, there were two movies that don't really work that well, but that sort of pleasantly surprised me that came out this week. Those being <clears throat> the uh, the Time Traveler's Wife, uh, which, uh, though, though sappy and though... Uh, illogical with its central premise uh, nonetheless yes. works. It works somewhat. Uh, it gets dragged down in its uh, in its second act, but it works in the end. Uh, and also uh, The Stepfather, which is a, a horror remake that exceeded my very, very, very low expectations uh, to be decently entertaining for what it was. Uh, this is not a great week for movie releases. I, I, I can't, can't really say. Uh, but but the Stepfather, if you're a fan of that sort of thing, this is an exceedingly uh, decent um, version of that sort of movie. Okay. Does that round it out? That rounds it out. All right, and I actually rented A Serious Man last night, so I will actually watch that today. Awesome. So I can't wait. I have a new Coen Brothers movie to watch today, uh, which is a rare thing. Time for the BF Double Dose. So I'm going to give you uh, a couple of movies sticking with our Oscar theme. I'll switch to films that feature performances that won the award for Best Supporting Actress. Now, anybody who says that Meryl Streep is a great actress who's never been in a great movie, and a lot of people have said that, actually. The Onion. Yeah, The Onion. Yeah. Uh, they haven't watched Kramer vs. Kramer, and I think that they would probably give more of its credit to Dustin Hoffman and um, the son that's in the movie. They dominate uh, most of the screen time. But this film was also a Best Picture winner in 1979. I highly recommend it, and Meryl Streep deserved the Oscar that she won for Best Supporting Actress. And here we go. I would be out of form if I didn't give you my obligatory Woody Allen recommendation. <laughs> so I'll go with Diane Weist um, in the criminally underrated Bullets Over Broadway. Yeah, good choice. From 1994. Though Weist also won the Oscar under Allen's direction in Hannah and Her Sisters. Uh, in 1986, and that was last week's pick in honor of Michael Caine, who won for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, and another note, Woody Allen has directed four Best Supporting Actress uh, wins uh, in his career. Two for Weiss for those films, and then one for Penelope Cruz for Vicky Cristina Barcelona, and one for Mira Sorvino for Mighty Africa. And he's had a lot of others nominated. Yeah, and uh, from Bullets Over Broadway, Jennifer Tilly, she was just as deserving to me. Yeah. She hasn't done much with her career since then, if you unless you count Bride of Chucky, but she was excellent <laughs> in that movie, perfectly cast. Okay, time for announcements. All right, uh, we're holding a contest where you, the listener, can name our show. Uh, we'd like to keep it film or conversation friendly, uh, though that we have some restrictions. There will be several words we will not allow in the title, those being movie, film, screen, cinema, or real. So you have to be creative. Uh, email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com with your suggestions. Uh, the winner will be announced on the subsequent episode once we've chosen our title. Now, if you have any feedback, again, you can email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com. If you feel we've missed something or you have any suggestions as to films we can review or topics we can discuss, please, uh, please send us an email. Yeah, and we do hope to podcast this and other episodes of the show, so you can find my blog at benaround.tumblr.com to see any updates. And Corey and I also, we frequently write film-focused Facebook notes, so if that's your preference, there's that. And you can also find us on Twitter soon, but you have to wait for the handle. Once this contest is won by somebody, we will have a Twitter handle once we name the show. Now, thank you again for listening. And instead of the uh, Ennio Morricone track, Rabia and Tarantella, uh, from Inglorious Bastards today, I'm going to leave you with a local band, Bakwai. Now for Corey Kraft, I am Ben Flanagan. Thanks again for listening. This is the Movie Talk Show, yet to be named. Tune in next week, 9 a.m. on Saturday.